Exodus chapter 7. If you have a wider blue Bible like the one I got up here that we gave you or that you're about to open, Seth, it's page 28. Actually, it'll be on page 29 because we're going we're gonna, to gonna start in chapter 7, verse 1. Um, Exodus chapter 7, that's where we're at. Welcome to man worship. Yeah, this is, uh, this is what it looks like when 41 of our women and every sick kid and their husbands are home with the kids. It's just how we're going to roll and we're going to be fine. If you uh, came here and your house is dirty, that's a rookie mistake. Like, don't ever do it again. Your wife does not want to come home to a dirty house at the end of a women's retreat. So you need to fix that. And I'm going to do my part. I'm going to let you out early today so you can go home and clean your house before she gets home, okay? So I'm helping you out. This is, I wish someone would have told me this when I was your age. A couple of you are in here. Uh, you got to get it done. It's got to happen. I'm telling you. All right, good. Real clean. Bed made, all the stuff. Yeah, it'll help you in the long run. All right. Yeah, and I can imagine, I told, there's not a lot of girls here, but if one had come, it's like just weird looking kids and like a bunch of men, she's like, I hit the jackpot. Like, no, you didn't hit the jackpot. It's just, it's not a cult. We just, we all dressed our kids, didn't feed them all weekend, and our women are coming back tonight, so that'll be good. All right. Here we go. Exodus chapter 7 is where we're going to be. Uh, we've been following the history of the people of Israel uh, through the book of Exodus. We actually did Genesis a while before that. But anyway, um, just real quick summary of where we've been and where we're at right now. Uh, where we are so far is the people of Israel have been in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years. Uh, the super short version of the last six and a half chapters is that God has called Moses now to lead those people out of slavery. So he went and grabbed Moses from the desert, Midian, which is far south, uh, kind of not a very populated area, brought him up to Egypt. And uh, Moses is like, all right, let's go. Let's get these people out of here. He went to Pharaoh the very first time. Pharaoh was the name for the king of Egypt. And he said, hey, uh, God, Yahweh, told me to let the people go. And Pharaoh was like, nope, not doing it. And Pharaoh, in fact, was like, in fact, not only am I not letting them go, the reason they're thinking about such ridiculous things as getting out of here is because they're not working hard enough. So he actually made things way harder on the Israelites. And so we finished last chapter, chapter 6, and Moses was really upset with God. He's like, God, you haven't delivered your people at all. They're not only not free, they're not closer to free, and their situation is harder than it was when I first got here. And so he's very upset at God, and at this point, God responds. We read it two weeks ago in chapter 6, and God says, I am Yahweh. Now you will see what I'm going to do. So Moses is like complaining to God, and God goes, I am Yahweh. And it's like this kind of weird answer. Like, it's not saying he's going to fix anything. He just proclaimed his name to Moses. And there's a twofold purpose behind why he is about to do the things he's about to do. And I'm talking about God here, Yahweh. If you want to, you can look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 7. Uh, at the top of page 29 there. But God says this. He says, one, I'm going to bring my people out of slavery. And number two, the Egyptians are going to know that I am the Lord. Now, L-O-R-D, it's capitalized in your Bible. Uh, L, and then it's like smaller, but it's still capital. I know they try to make that as confusing as possible. That's the Tetragrammaton. That's the name of God. We talked about that when we studied through Exodus chapter 6. Six, it's a really big deal. If you didn't catch that, go ahead and listen to our study through Exodus 6, right? God is really 
intent on you knowing that he has a name and that it differentiates him from every other claim that of I'm a God or you're a God or we worship this God. God's like, no, 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 I'm not like those gods. I am Yahweh. So he says, not only that he's going to bring his people out of slavery in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 7, but that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Okay? So catch this. The purpose of what follows, the purpose of what we're about to read, the purpose of all these things that you're going to read about, you've probably heard the 10 plagues of Egypt, right? All of that is for twofold. That the people come out and that the Egyptians know that he is Yahweh. It's a big deal. And what's going to happen here is Yahweh is going to bring his people out of slavery in such a way that it makes it clear who he is and how he is not the gods that they had previously worshipped in Egypt. So we're going to watch this happen many times over the next several chapters. Over and over and over again, Yahweh is going to do things that posture him against the gods of Egypt and also above the gods of Egypt. So it's kind of like him saying, like, I'm not like the gods you think you worship. Like, me and them are not on the same team. We're not similar at all. Not only am I not like them and am I against them, I'm over the top of them. I have power over them. It's almost like God saying, here's the type of God you currently trust in. Here's the limitations. Here's the, the downfalls. Here's the weaknesses of those God. And I'm so much above and beyond any comprehension that you have if you're going to compare me to these types of gods. I am Yahweh, the one true God. Here's the type of God I am, the incomparable one, the I am, the one that no one else is like not close to. So hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in just a second. So put a like bookmark in your brain, like everything that God is doing here is to bring the people out and to reveal to the Egyptians that he is Yahweh. Now, there's also something going on simultaneous to that. Uh, between God and Moses. So that's where we're going to pick it up. Verse 8 of chapter 7, and then we're going to go through the end of the chapter. Here we go. Chapter 7, verse 8, right at the top, page 29, if you got one of our Bibles. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men of the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same things by their secret arts. For each man cast down a staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So at the same time that Yahweh is revealing himself to the Egyptians, or beginning to reveal himself to the Egyptians, Yahweh is also refining and developing Moses' understanding of him. Right? Moses is a God follower. Moses is part of the people of Yahweh. He doesn't have it all together yet. He's still growing in his understanding and knowledge of and relationship with Yahweh. I think that should be, like, if Moses needed to grow, like, how much us Christians, right? Like, as we follow Jesus, we still need to grow in our understanding of God. And while God is about to do some very large things that are specifically targeted to the Egyptians, he's also doing some things in Moses and the way he's going about what he's doing to grow some faith and relationship in Moses and Aaron. So... It's almost like God had reminded them. Previous chapters, several chapters ago, God had given Moses and Aaron a sign. He said, throw the staff down. It'll become a snake. When Pharaoh asks you to perform a sign, this is what you're supposed to do. So it's like God reminds them, like, hey, go do the snake 
the thing. The staff turns into a snake thing. Go do that in front of Pharaoh. So they do. They go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, give me a sign. They throw the staff down. It becomes a snake, and Pharaoh doesn't care. Right? Now, this is interesting because the danger here when you get some sort of a... Um, I don't know what answer to prayer. When God gives you something, when God blesses you in some way, when God lets you control something, the danger is that you misunderstand what God is trying to do when he gives you that thing. Because here's the question. What do we know about Moses right now? What do we know about Moses' uh, interaction with God? He's upset, right? That's where we finished chapter 6. He's like, you haven't delivered your people at all. So not only is Moses upset, he thinks God is taking too long. God, you're just, you're not moving fast enough here. Why would you take, why would you make it harder? Why would you allow the Pharaoh to make it worse on the people? Why is this getting worse? Like, this is more of a struggle than when I showed up. What are you doing? Let's get the show on the road. So the temptation, if you're Moses, is to be like, sweet, I got this miracle. Now I can go to Pharaoh and get done what God should have done, right? I can get the show on the road. We can start moving now because God's taken so long on this thing. If you're not careful, the good thing that God gave you, in this case with Moses, it's a miracle, it can become the thing you trust in instead of trusting in God. And, and here's why it's dangerous. Because if you start placing your trust in the miracle instead of in Yahweh, you can get this weird thing going where you got the right God, but you're interacting in the wrong way. You think God gave you a blessing so that you can now control your own life. And here's, God's not into you controlling your own life. He's into you submitting to his control for his life. See, Yahweh is very intentional about accomplishing his will and you knowing and trusting in his will. But he's not a huge fan of you trusting in the things that you can control to get your will accomplished. Yahweh's not in the business of giving you things so you could get your will done in your timing. Here's another way to say it. God doesn't give you things in order that you would trust him less. And I think a lot of people, oh, I, I get this thing and now I don't have to trust God as much because I can control it. You guys are probably much more spiritual than me, but I'm always looking for ways I can control a situation. How can I get my will done? How can I get what I want done? How can I maneuver around? Like, I just feel that in my soul. It's like the alien living inside of me or something like that. Uh, it's just like, how can I start to control this situation? And God's not in the business of giving you things so you can take more control of your life. He's interested in you surrendering more of your life. So maybe it's a job or a relationship or a financial opportunity or a spiritual experience or maybe a gifting or even a miracle. If it causes you to trust God less and take control of your life more, then that thing probably didn't come from God. It probably wasn't from Yahweh. Beware of trusting even in good things above Yahweh because, man, we are sinful. We will make idols out of anything. We'll do it. We'll worship ourselves in all sorts of stuff. So watch what Yahweh does in this situation, starting in verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So here's what Yahweh does to protect Moses from this trusting in miracles thing. He gives Moses and Aaron a miracle. The miracle works just like it's supposed to, 
but it doesn't change anything. You see that? It doesn't change one single thing. So this thing that Moses could have trusted in to get things moving doesn't change the situation at all. Here's why. The power is not in the miracle. The power is in the God of the miracles. And you're like, isn't that the same thing? It's not the same thing. Right? It's not the same thing. So many people are out there looking for a miracle. Oh, if this situation just changed, if this thing happened, if I got this thing, if, it, if this just, you know, and it's like, no, that's not, it, without God, the miracle doesn't accomplish squat. Do you see that? Right? They do the miracle, nothing changes. Pharaoh's like, get out of my face. And, and in our minds, we're like, how could that, if there's a miracle, people have to believe. No, they don't. The spirit of God is what changes hearts and minds and lives. It's not the miracle. And God does this a lot. God allows the things you are trusting in to fail so you know that it all depends on him. It's like the old, old joke about a dog chasing a fire truck. Like, what dog? What are you going to do when you catch the fire truck? Right? You're probably going to find out you didn't want to catch the fire truck. And people do that all the time. They're like, oh, if I just get this job, if I just get this financial situation figured out, if I just get this pay raise, if I just get that house, if I just get my living situation figured out, if I just get that relationship, right? If I just get my kids, right? Fill in the blank. We all have the thing that we're like, if I just get that. And God allows those things. Sometimes he allows you to get those things. It's like the dog catching the fire truck and realizing like, oh, that thing didn't give me what I thought it was going to give me. God lets it fail. We get the relationship, and it doesn't work out. We get the house, our marriage isn't any better. We get the job, our family starts to fall apart. We get these things that we thought were going to fix our lives, and they don't fix our lives. And God's like, yeah, because it's not in the blessings I give. It's in trusting me. It's not in the miracle, Moses, Aaron. It's in me. Moses gets the miracle he probably thought he wanted. Aaron gets to do the miracle he probably thought was going to change things. It doesn't change anything. The people are still in bondage. Pharaoh's heart's still hard. And this is actually a gift from God. Wait, what? It's a gift from God? Yeah, it's a gift from God. When things you should not trust in fail you, that is kindness from God. That's kindness. You're like, that's not kindness if I lost my job or if I didn't have enough money to fix my situation or if my relationship didn't work out or if the house didn't make me happy or if the situation didn't fix everything. Why is that kindness from God? Because you shouldn't be trusting in those things. It's kind of like this. I hung a hammock in my house recently for my kids, right? My kids like the hammocks in the backyard in the trees in the summer. And then in the winter, they're just like going nuts. So I hung a hammock inside. And I use those eye bolts to like screw into the wood and you're like using a stud finder and like trying to go through the drywall. And you're pretty sure you got it in those stud, but you're maybe not, right? So what did I do? I hung it up there and then I tested it myself first. And it broke and I fell on the ground, but I was only a little bit off the ground. It was okay. I was like, yeah, I was, that was good. Right? My son was watching me and it fell. He's like, oh no. And I was like, no, that's exactly what I wanted to have happen if it wasn't trustworthy. 
I wanted it to fail. That's actually good. Way better that than I put my two-year-old daughter in there. I was like, let's swing. And then she just goes flying in the bookcase or something, right? It's a lot better that it failed right then when there was low consequences. And so it was actually a kindness to my kids that that failed. Then I was like, okay, missed the stud, moved it over, screwed it in. Now I got it tied. I can feel it's better now. Hang on. It's fine. My kids are not dead yet. But, you know, my wife doesn't get home for six hours, so we'll pray for me. But... That's a kindness from God when the thing you shouldn't trust in fails you because now you know it's not trustworthy. Moses and Aaron are going to see a lot of miracles over the next couple chapters. They're going to see a lot of amazing things. And if they're not careful, they can trust in those miracles to get things done. But God right up front is showing them there's no power in the miracles without me, guys. There's going to be a lot of miracles coming. They can't do one single thing without Yahweh, the Almighty, doing them and moving in hearts. And so trusting in God is not the same thing as trusting in miracles, okay? Trusting in God is different than trusting in the miracles God gives. Trusting in God is worship. Trusting in things God can do for you is idolatry. So God is letting this miracle not produce the results they thought it was going to produce, and that is a kindness of God. It's not a failure. It's a success. God's plan is absolutely still on track here. So on the other side, Pharaoh is actually the exact kind of person that Moses does not want God to become. Okay? This is crazy. Look, when Pharaoh says in verse 9, prove yourself by working a miracle, what is he saying? Pharaoh is basically saying, if you do a cool enough miracle for me, God, if you do a cool enough trick, then I will trust in you. Like, if I judge what you do for me cool enough, then I will trust in you. So, What's happening here is Pharaoh is trusting in the miracles. Pharaoh is the one who's saying, hey, if you do a cool enough trick, then I will put my faith and trust in you. And what's interesting about that is, who's the authority in that situation? Is it God? No, it's Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh gets to be the judge. If what you do for me is cool enough, then I will, like, I'm going to evaluate you, God, how does that work when we like, decide that we're going to be the evaluators of God? You think that works out well for anybody? No, it doesn't. But that's not God's heart, right? God's heart is not showing off cool tricks so you can figure out the formula to get him to do the tricks you want him to do. That's how the gods of the Egyptians work, right? The Egyptians are all trying to figure out the formula. Hey, if there's no rain, then let's do the rain dance so the god of rain gives us rain. Hey, if there's no crops, then let's do the, the crop sacrifice so that the crop god gives us our crops. Hey, if the ocean's not producing enough fish, how do we worship the fish god? You get him to do what we want, and God's like, that's not how I roll. I don't, I'm not waiting for you to do this thing to figure out the formula in order for you to get something out of me. So Pharaoh wants a miracle for Yahweh to prove his power. But Yahweh doesn't work like that. Yahweh is instead always concerned about building relationship with people. That's how he works. He's not into doing miracles so that you can say, like, wow, that was a cool trick. He does miracles in order to build relationship. So here's the question. Why did God give Moses a miracle at all if it wasn't going to change anything? 
Why would you do that, God? Why would you be like, hey, there's this trick with a snake and a stick and it's going to be awesome. Like, but it's not going to help you at all. This was a Moses trusting in God thing. This wasn't a manipulating Pharaoh's will thing. God was interested in building a relationship with Moses and the miracle was so that Moses knew the power of God and trusted in what God could do even if the circumstances were still difficult. The relationship between Moses and Yahweh is being strengthened here. Even if the people aren't any more free at the end of this chapter. And God is about to do something similar for the Egyptians. He's going to reveal how inadequate the gods they trust in are and how different and superior he is in comparison that they might trust in him. So look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go, verse 15. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, by this you will know that I am Yahweh. Behold, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the waters in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and all the pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So here we have what are known as, well, the first of what's known as the 10 plagues. So this was the first plague. It's not just a random trick that God did in order to prove how cool and powerful he is. This is very specific to the Egyptians in order to teach them something about who Yahweh actually is. We'll work backwards a little bit, okay, in order to kind of get the frame of what God's doing here. First, look at the end, verse 24. All the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink so they could not drink the water of the Nile. So there's fresh water in the land, just they can't drink Nile River water. You see that? So this is not like a military siege. Okay, sometimes there's like military like surrounded, especially in these days, the surrounding area, and they'd be like, no water, no food, in or out, and we'll just wait them out till they get real thirsty and die. That's not what God's doing here. God's not just saying like, oh, you guys are not gonna have fresh water to drink forever, and then we'll just wait till you're thirsty and you finally surrender. That's not what's happening here. It's not a plague against fresh water. That's a really big deal. It's a plague against the Nile River specifically. You probably guess the Nile is a pretty big deal in Egypt, right? I actually looked some stuff up this week. It said that 97% of Egypt's population lives on only 8% of the land. Why? They're all smashed in against the Nile River. The rest of it's desert, right? So almost everybody lives right next to the Nile River. There is a river that is the literal source of life for every Egyptian. Think about that. 
If there is no Nile River, people don't live in Egypt. That's, that's how they get crops. That's how they get food. That's how they get drinking water. That's how, like, everything in their society revolves around the Nile River. Livestock can't survive. Crops can't grow. Fresh water, you can't live. All of it comes from the Nile River. So the Egyptians also had this religious component to the Nile River. They had this system of gods and goddesses, and it's super weird, and I read way too much of it this week. But uh, basically, the Nile River played a huge part of that. They believed that the Nile River flowed through heaven, through the underworld, and into Egypt. And so they thought literally that the Nile River, in their theology, was their connection to all things spiritual. They literally said that like, in our religious system, the Nile River flows from the land of the gods and goddesses. So that was their connection to the spiritual thing. And because of this, they believed that the Nile River was a source of life for all things. So the Nile River was basically the creation narrative for the Egyptian system of gods and goddesses because they believed the Nile produced life. The Nile was the source of creation. And on top of all that, there was an Egyptian god named Hapi, H-A-P-I, I don't know what the Egyptian letters are, right? But he was the god of the Nile River floods. Okay, the Nile River flooded every year. Not only was this fresh water necessary to sustain life, but the silt brought down from the extra water was good for crops. So they had the systems of canals and ponds to irrigate and divert the water. So there's a lot of water sitting around. It said earlier there was rivers and canals and ponds. All this was Nile River water that they were saving for irrigation. Okay, so the flooding of the Nile was so significant that the whole yearly calendar of the Egyptians was built upon the stages of the Nile. There was flood season, there was growing season, and then there was harvest season. And that was all based on the Nile. The Nile's flooding. Okay, it's flood season. The Nile gets a little bit lower. Now it's growing season. Now we got to harvest before the Nile floods again. Everything in their life, their calendar, their days, all of it was based on the Nile River. So put all this together, what do we have when we're talking about the Nile? Well, first, it's the Egyptian people's connection to the gods because it flowed from the land of the gods. So all of the culture's connections to all things spiritual was represented in the Nile. Second, the Nile River was the source of creation. It's where they thought they came from as people. Every explanation the Egyptians had for how humans existed on the earth started with the Nile River. Third, the Nile flooding and the god of the Nile flooding, Hapi, was the only source of hope for continued provision for the Egyptian people. If we're going to have crops next year, Hapi's got to do the flood thing. Otherwise, we're not going to make it through another year. So if it was their like source of provision and hope for the future. And then fourth, because of that, everything in their entire world revolved, like their entire culture, like the months, the days, the years, all of it, their whole life was surrounding the Nile River and its flooding structure. And so the patterns of their life, all of it was Nile River focused, their entire culture. So when Yahweh proves himself sovereign over and in control of the Nile, He's revealing to the people that their understanding of their connection to the spiritual was misguided. You see that? When the Nile turns to blood, they're not just like, oh, bummer, now we can't drink. They're like, wait, this supposedly comes from the heavens. This supposedly is our connection to all things spiritual. And this Yahweh God just messed it all up. This Yahweh God just changed our connection to all things spiritual. Like the Nile, where does it come from? We think it comes from the underworld and from the heavens, but like Yahweh somehow has control over that? It's like mind-blowing. Like 
Think about if you're an Egyptian, you got like a little kid. You know, little kids say things, right? And you're teaching your kid like, yeah, the Nile River, it's the source of life. It's where we came from. You're like, the gods are serious and raw. They, they come, they live on the end of the Nile and it's our source of all things spiritual. And then you walk down to drink one morning and it's all blood. And you're like four-year-olds like, I thought this was our connection to the gods. Like, rut row, right? Like, yeah, this is bad, right? This is not gonna, like, this is what's happening. Like this connection to all things spiritual is now interrupted, right? Second, there's their, their explanation for how they began. It's all changed, right? If Yahweh has control over the Nile, right? And the Nile is our source of creation. Like what, what are we doing here? Right? And then this pattern of like flooding and renewal, all of our culture surrounding the crops, everything that the Nile provides us, all of that apparently is, is subject to the power of Yahweh. This is weird. This is different, right? So when Yahweh proves himself in control over the Nile, everything changes. Everything changes. So the message to everybody who's watching this is that this God of the Hebrews this God that we've talked about through this, this book so far, the God that hears the cries of people is so different than the gods of the Egyptians. This God that sees people's pain, this God that initiates love towards his people, the Hebrews, before they ever did anything for him, this God who intends to set his people free, not because they've earned it, but because he's a good, gracious, kind, merciful God, this God who isn't mad at his people, isn't demanding of sacrifices to be appeased, but is pursuing a relationship with his people, this Yahweh God that operates so differently than any God who's on the Egyptian side or, or any other God they've ever heard of, this Yahweh God is powerful over the source of creation, over the promise of provision, over the culture and structure of their lives. This Yahweh God controls their connection to the spiritual. It's a pretty powerful message to all the people who are watching this, Right? It's not just like, oh, bummer, we're going to have to find a different place to find drinking water. It's like this theology of their entire lives is turned on its head. And now what's happening is there's this internal struggle, right? Because what you believe forms how you live. And so now they're like, oh, if I thought I came from here, if I thought my connection to spiritual things was here, if my whole rhythm of life was surrounding this thing, and Yahweh can just change that in a second. Maybe I'm not as secure as I thought I was. Maybe my explanation for my why, why my life looks like it looks is not as sufficient as I thought it was. So yes, God is bringing his people out of slavery, but there's also this theological battle taking place in the hearts of individuals who look at the Nile River and hold it as this in its position of authority and power that it never deserved to have. It's subject to Yahweh, the Almighty God. And here's the saddest part of the whole thing. Pharaoh watches all this happen, and his heart is still hard at the end of it. God reveals all this incredible, like, misunderstanding of the way reality really is in Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh's like, don't care. Your connection to all things spiritual is wrong, Pharaoh. Don't care. You, you, your, your hope for the future and the flooding, it's all wrong, Pharaoh. Don't care. Like all the, the way you've organized your life and it's all about the Nile instead of the God who created the Nile, it's wrong, Pharaoh. Don't care. He's going to live with a hardened heart. 
Now you might read this and think, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Nobody would do that. This is like a fairy tale for kids, Jared. It's completely unrealistic. And I would ask you, have you lived in the world that we live in at all? Like 2022, people do this all the time. Our world is absolutely full of people both inside and outside the church who are living lives and pursuing things that they absolutely know are not working and they don't plan on changing it at all. They want to live in the hardness of heart. We know it's not good for us. We know it's not working. We know we shouldn't. We know our lives should be better. We know it's leading us away from God. We know it's suffocating the life out of us. Our marriages are suffering. Our friendships are suffering. Our health is suffering. We're losing joy. We feel very little connection to the spirit of God or our souls at all. But we're going to keep going because we don't want to change. People do it all the time. And it's not just an outside the church thing. People do it inside the church all the time. I said it a couple weeks ago. Hardness of heart is the most dangerous thing in your life. So if the Spirit of God is revealing where your heart is hard, do not wait to walk in obedience. Do not wait. The consequences of living with a hard heart are so much more devastating than whatever consequence you think there will be for confession and repentance. And, and God didn't do it like this because he's angry. Okay, he's not mad at Pharaoh. He's trying to get Pharaoh's attention. Do you see that? He's not like, Pharaoh, you suck. Watch this. Like, he's like, Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. Please, over here, look, look, all the stuff you, 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 you're missing it, Pharaoh. You're missing it, Egyptians. This, this explanation of life, this thing you think you're just going to keep going, it has to get better. It, no, 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 over here, you're going the wrong way. That's why he said at the beginning, we said that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Not that I'll whoop some Egyptian butt. That's not what he said. He said, I want them to know who I am. If you hear a conviction of God in your soul this morning, don't bow your back up and just, I'm not doing that. He doesn't know me. Like, don't dismiss it. God reveals these things to hearts because he loves you. Like, this didn't come from some angry God who's annoyed that you've displeased him. That's not the posture of God towards his people. This is a loving father who disciplines the ones he loves. And what we do as his people is we respond to his kindness. That's all we do. We respond in grateful obedience. Our heart posture is gratefulness. Our action is obedience, which is the opposite of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart posture is arrogance, and his action is indifference. He doesn't know me. I don't care. I'm not doing it. You know what the sneaky theme is here? You have to ignore a lot of God's kindness if you're going to continue to live with a hard heart. That's like the sneaky, like underlying thing. Like you got to ignore a lot of the grace of God if you're going to continue on with a stubborn hard heart. You got to be indifferent to a lot of kind things that God has given to you. A lot of answered prayers, a lot of situations God saved you from when you didn't even know you needed saving. You have to ignore a lot of the kindness of God if you're going to continue to ignore him. It's almost like you have to say, I will not allow your love to influence me, Yahweh. If we phrase it like that, it sounds really stupid, right? 
Welcome to the world. Humans are stupid. Right? And there's a lot of people out there like, I will not allow your mercy and kindness and grace to change my mind. It's just a, a really hard way to live. Hopefully, we are a people who are the opposite of that. Hopefully, we become a people who allow the entirety of our lives to be influenced by the love and goodness and mercy and grace of Yahweh. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful of your kindness towards us. Uh, we're grateful you're just such a good God. And yeah, there's some correction and instruction given. And sometimes you try to get our attention by letting things we thought we wanted fail us. So we don't trust in them, but we trust in you. But Lord, I, don't let us live there. Let that instruction and correction and attention getting turn into worship. Let it turn into joy. Thank you that you don't leave us like you found us. Father, do your work in hearts this morning. And we ask you in your name. Amen.